A big show this week on Home Dunk. We're going to talk to a former NBA player, a current WNBA player, and somebody who's going to tell us about something bonkers happening in Tampa. I hit a home dunk. I wish that you had shown up. I played over my head. Everything was off the charts. I jumped out the gymnasium and knocked it out the park. Did a handstand and hit a grand slam It was a great day for the fans Man, I got three sacks and broke three bats I gave the crowd money plus free snacks I did a hat trick and a backflip It's on ESPN Classic And you weren't there and it hurt me To watch them retire my jersey I hit a home dunk Welcome, Dunkaroos. This is Home Dunk. I'm John Moe. You know that because you downloaded it. You didn't chance buy it on the radio dial. I am still adjusting. We have a great deal to get to in the show today. We're going to talk about political activism among players. We're going to talk about uh, geographical displacement among players. And we're going to talk about indentured servitude. But first, I want to talk about the Phoenix Suns. If you've been uh, if you've been looking for a team to follow, if you've been looking for a team to maybe raise your eyebrows and suck you into their intrigue, I suggest the Phoenix Suns. Buy a ticket if they're coming to your town, or see their game if you can, or, or simply read about them, or maybe watch something on internet about the Phoenix Suns because I've become a little fascinated by them because I like stories, and you like stories. That's why you follow sports. I like stories where the characters have some vulnerabilities, where there's something a little uncertain about them, where things could go either way, where things could either triumph or come crashing down, uh, where things are even a little abnormal to how things normally are. Ladies and gentlemen, the Phoenix Suns. I've been watching them. Uh, I've got that league pass thing, and I've been watching a lot of Phoenix Suns games. And I grew up, you know, with the Phoenix Suns of Charles Barkley and Kevin Johnson and the the Phoenix Suns being pretty good. These guys aren't all that good, but they have intrigue. To begin with, they have two sets of brothers on their team. They have Marcus and Markeith Morris, who are both very, very good players and often play at the same time. They were drafted by different teams. One was drafted by the Houston Rockets, but they wanted to play together so badly as they have their entire lives because they're twins. They've wanted to play together. And so they both ended up on the Phoenix Suns and now they're happy together or at least sort of, or at least I hope, but I don't know. Would you want to do that? Would you want to go into your first big professional job with your sibling? I don't think very many people would say yes. So that this is intriguing about Marcus and Markeith Morris, who are twins and often play at the same time on the floor, which is a challenge for the announcers of the Phoenix Suns. Then you have Goran Dragic and Zoran Dragic. And I'm told that it's pronounced Dragic and not Dragic. Dragic rhymes with tragic or magic. But Goran and Zoran. Now, Goran is a superstar on that team. He's arguably their best player. He shoots like crazy. He's athletic. He's he's a fantastic player. Zoran, his younger brother, is barely holding on, has been sent down to the development league before, uh, is probably one of the last guys off the bench. 
Zoran is the lesser Dragic among the two. And I think he's the younger brother. Now imagine that dynamic. So you're, <laughs> you're halfway around the world playing uh, in this huge league, all eyes on you, and then your brother is on the team. Would that be harder to be the older brother, knowing that your kid brother is tagging along and being one of the best basketball players in the world, but relatively sucky compared to the rest of the team and the rest of the league you're in? How awkward is that? Or would it be worse to be Zoran uh, and know that, yeah, you made it to the NBA, but your big brother is still better than you and can still do things you can't do? Like start and score more. And I I guess it's some consolation that you get to be Zoran, which is a better name than Goron. But still, there's a lot going on with the Phoenix Suns. Miles Plumlee is on that team. And uh, he has a brother who also plays in the league. So you know that the subject of brotherhood comes up a lot and comparisons come up a lot. And it must be some very moving and tender conversations on the tour bus among Miles, Goron, Zoran, Marcus, and Markeef. You also have Isaiah Thomas on that team, who is such a joy to watch. If you really want to watch a basketball player that's fun to watch, Isaiah Thomas shares the same name as the other Isaiah Thomas NBA legend. This one was the last player picked in the draft a couple years ago by the Sacramento Kings. Very rarely does the final player picked at the end of the second round even make any sort of team. It's sort of a a long shot what the heck, let's take a a gamble here. Isaiah Thomas made that team, did great, signed as a free agent with the Phoenix Suns, is very short for an NBA player, but makes things happen. And uh, he went to University of Washington, which is my, my former employer, so I might have some bias. Still, fascinating to watch, even in the midst of the swarm of brothers that is the Phoenix Suns. And finally, you have Jeff Hornacek, who is their coach. And I don't know why. I don't remember him becoming a coach. He was a, a pretty talented uh, shooting guard, a, a Goron Dragic type of uh, player for many years in the league with Utah, with Phoenix. I think he was with Philadelphia for a while. I think he was part of the Charles Barkley trade. And uh, he was fine, but I don't recall him being a coach. But when you watch him coach, you can kind of see the same look on his face as I have. Like, What's Jeff Hornacek doing there? Which is confusing for me as a fan, as someone watching the game, but it has to be even more confusing when you're Jeff Hornacek himself talking about yourself and not quite knowing what you're doing. Maybe he's extremely confident. Maybe he knows exactly what he's doing, but I don't think so. So that's my tip. If you want to be interested by intrigue, if you want to see a team that always looks a little unsure of themselves, if you want to see a team in vulnerability, I suggest the Phoenix Suns. There's been a lot happening in the news outside of the world of sports. There have been situations happening with police and lacks of indictments in New York and in the St. Louis area. It's been on a lot of people's minds. The other night, uh, Kobe Bryant and all of the Los Angeles Lakers wore I Can't Breathe uh, t-shirts during warm-ups, which is a reference to Eric Garner in New York City. Um 
And so the activism is percolating a little bit. It's perking up. More is happening. And this has been noticed by Len Elmore, former NBA player, current head of the NBA Former Players Association, and uh, an attorney who's also a basketball analyst. Mr. Elmore, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure is mine. Tell me, you you wrote an op-ed in USA Today several months ago talking about how a a criticism, really, of NBA players for not taking more of a stand, not speaking up more about the situation in Ferguson, Missouri. There has been more activity on the part of some of the players since then. What do you think now about the situation? Well, first of all, I mean, my article wasn't aimed solely at NBA players. Um, I thought that uh, with the gravity that athletes have, professional athletes have in, in our society, that um, I thought that they could stand for something. And I'm speaking of athletes in, in all uh, sports. And it wasn't just Ferguson. It was about standing for principle um, and, and providing some kind of moral authority and guidance. And so, you know, with the uh, events of the past couple of weeks now where athletes have taken a more activist position, um, and, and speaking their minds, I think it's uh, I think it's great, and I think uh, more and more people are going to kind of join the debate and, and listen to what athletes have to say because many of them have some positive things to say. It seems like some of the statements being made recently, Derek Rose uh, wearing of the Chicago Bulls wearing a shirt that says "I can't breathe," the St. Louis Rams players with their hands up. A lot of this seems to be kind of passive commentary. How do you feel about that? Is, is it more effective by not actually coming out and, and saying things in those situations? Well, it really depends on the individual. I mean, the passive commentary certainly works for those who, you know, have feelings, uh, whether it's um, visceral or, or, or just, you know, feelings that uh, are probably plain but not uh, complex and, or in-depth. And it allows them to make a statement without actually trying to articulate uh, a, a real position, which is okay, because I recognize today that there are a lot of uh, athletes who have been purposely, as I said in my article, purposely um, kind of isolated from these types of issues and aren't maybe in many instances educated to a position where they can sit there and articulate a position, but they know what they feel and they know what's real. So, you know, the basic and, and the passive types of uh, communications are, are just as important as those who are, are more articulate on the position. You describe being a young teenager and seeing athletes gathering together to make a political point and, and to kind of make a political effort. Uh, what did that mean to you? And it, could you describe that situation? It was a meeting that was convened back in June of, I believe, of 67, if I'm not mistaken. And it was convened by Jim Brown, um, someone who was uh, politically active in, in many ways, socially active. And it was to gather African-American athletes, prominent athletes, to sit and not really come to a decision, but to discuss the issues surrounding uh, Muhammad Ali, his arrest uh, by the government uh, based upon his conscientious objector position, um, and again, uh, stating his, his opposition to the war in Vietnam. I think, and by getting people together and discussing this, um, I think it, it made an impact on someone like me, who at the time, 14 years old, um, recognized that sports wasn't just about sports, and particularly with, with people of color, that there was more to sports in our, ingrained in our society, and that athletes, the ones who are uh, looked, up upon, looked upon as, as being you know, somewhat genius in their sports, but also 
um, you know, had the intelligence to be able to get involved in things beyond sports, had the, the desire to get into things beyond sports. It was very important to me. It made me understand that you're a citizen of the world. Just because you're an athlete, it doesn't mean that you're foreclosed from having an opinion and foreclosed from stating that opinion. I mean, we were in tumultuous times back then, be it the civil rights struggle or uh, the war in Vietnam, and, and athletes had as much of a right to speak up as anyone else. And, and that kind of powered me in my thinking um, as to where I belonged in this society, not only as an athlete, but as a citizen. What then is the responsibility of the athlete? If an athlete doesn't really feel like speaking up, do you think they, they still should? Do you think they need to be on the public record? No, I, I mean, every person, every person has their right to remain silent, <laughs> if you will, and they have their right to speak out. Um, but I think that there are so many who do have a position but are reticent for all the wrong reasons, whether it's going to have impact on you know, their marketing and sponsorship capabilities, whether you know, they're afraid that fans are going to turn on them. I, I don't think those are good enough reasons not to speak up, particularly against something that's so principled and, and has such a moral sway um, as the things that we're, we're talking about right now. And athletes have that. They have the gravitas to be able to state their position, and, and particularly in positions that are, that are, are probably inherently right. Um, you know, I'm not saying that in the Ferguson situation or in the police versus the black community situation that everything is, is one way or another, but I am saying that, you know, when you inherently take a look at what's going on right now, there is a problem, and the problem needs to be solved. And, and I think when you come out on the side of stating that there is a problem and you recognize that and the problem needs to be solved, I, I think that that's, that's principle. That's uh, that's. Uh, a good moral position to take, and I think most athletes have that uh, have that opinion, and so they should be able to exercise it. Uh, if more athletes come forward and speak out about that, trying to trying to solve that situation, or at least trying to improve that situation, will that improve the situation? I, I think that it expands the discourse. I think that more people now will take it seriously. As I said, sports is a, a unique. Uh, part of our of our society, and people maybe use sports to escape, but there are some issues that, uh, as citizens of, of this country, we cannot escape. And therefore, if it permeates sports, and the um, the issues are presented even within you know the uh, boundaries of, of the playing field, then so be it. It's going to get people to think, and it's going to get people to act, and hopefully. The thinking and the acting goes in, in the direction of solution as opposed to creating bigger problems. It almost seems like there was kind of a dip where you had Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, you had these very bold, very politically conscious figures maybe in the 1970s, 60s and 70s. And then you think of Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods who seemed not even just afraid to say anything, but like they didn't even care about a lot of these social issues. And now you have it kind of coming back the other way again. Yeah, I, I think um, there's an apolitical element to the people you just spoke of. I think that, you know, their handlers, their advisors probably, you know, advise them against it because they thought that public opinion wouldn't accept um, their outspokenness. Um, and also, if public opinion wouldn't accept it, neither would their sponsors. They're multi-million, you know, tens of millions of dollars that are derived from the sponsorships would uh, kind of dry up if that were the case. Uh, we start to recognize now that even sponsors have political positions. Yeah. And that, um, 
you know, people are more cognizant of, of the right of people to speak out. And again, if it's if it's something that's a moral issue, and we're looking towards solutions, and not necessarily burying one side or the other, then you know, I think that it's it's certainly acceptable. I mean, I, I wouldn't have any problem with any of the athletes coming out and taking a position and saying that you know there is uh, an issue. Uh, with regard to police and with regard to the black community. As I said, it, it could be their brothers, it could be their fathers, it could be their sons. And this is something that you have to, you have to worry about, particularly among African-American athletes. So, you know, I, I think that today uh, the issues are more pointed with social media coming out and, and, and being able to amplify what's being said. I, I think that it's a, it's a good thing, and, and that's why... I think the evolution has been helped by social media more than anything. How can athletes further their activism beyond the point where it is today? I think the greater understanding of issues, and we also need to talk about you know violence, uh, things like poverty. We need to talk about other things, all these interrelated issues and causes. I think the athletes can certainly speak out. Um, they can lend support, uh, resources, and other things. I mean, we have a, a community that... Has given professional athletes so much. So to to those to whom much is given, I mean, there's a, a lot to be expected in in return. And I think that athletes have to assume that responsibility and not just attack one issue or another, but take a look at the interrelationship and to be able to be a part in all so many ways to be a part of the solution of those issues. Should the actions by the athletes be proportionate to their level of success or their level of fame? I mean, you'd think LeBron James could get a lot more done than the fourth wide receiver on the St. Louis Rams could. Absolutely, but it doesn't preclude the fourth wide receiver from taking a position and and taking a stand as well. Um, You know, obviously the notoriety, obviously the the gravity uh, of LeBron James' name is going to get people's attention, and you know his resources are going to probably go a lot further if he commits any resources to you know solutions. But that that fourth wide receiver, that more obscure athlete, nonetheless, still has a voice and still has some impact. Uh, Len Elmore, I have to before we go. I have to ask you. Uh, you began. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Okay. No. You began your career playing for the Indiana Pacers in the ABA, and I've just always wondered what it's like playing in the ABA. Was that a, a, a situation where you thought, "Oh, this is going to last forever," or we're going to get shut down tomorrow? Um, when I was playing with the Pacers, I never believed that we were going to get shut down. I mean, I, I recognize from a uh, fiscal standpoint that the Pacers were doing reasonably well, that the fan base there was something that the NBA coveted. The NBA wasn't any great shakes at that time, right. by the way. and They recognized they needed to expand their fan base. Um, so I, I was pretty comfortable. That probably was one of the reasons why I would accepted the contract with the Pacers instead of accepting an inferior contract with the uh, Bullets at the time, who are now the Wizards, uh, because of their, their fiscal soundness and because of the belief that a merger was going to occur because the merger talks were still continuing even then. I played in the ABA for two years before we actually were absorbed by the NBA. So I, I was pretty fortunate and, you know, had some good advice. And then when your basketball career was done, you went to Harvard Law School, which is not a typical thing for an NBA player to do upon retirement. What led to that? 
Well, I had always wanted to be a lawyer. You talk about social activism, that, that meeting uh, convened by Jim Brown and, and so many other things during that time uh, really got me focused on wanting to do something, want to be part of the solution. Instead of standing on the sidelines and watching the parade go by, I wanted to be in the parade. And so that was in middle school, and it never really left me. Basketball obviously kind of interrupted that pursuit, but once it was over, I was fortunate enough to do reasonably well on the, you know, the LSATs and, and to be accepted at Harvard Law because my focus was on trying to give back through the law. I thought law could, could affect some kind of social change and I could affect some kind of personal change in my community. Len Elmore is a basketball analyst. He is a lawyer. He's a former NBA and ABA player. Len Elmore, thanks so much. And my pleasure. Thank you. Well, you can go to any football game, any NFL football game, and buy concessions. You can buy a beer there if you are of age. That's normal. What's not normal is what's been happening in Tampa at the Raymond James Stadium, home of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Will Hobson joins us from the Tampa Bay Times. And, Will, what's the the story that you've uncovered about who had been serving uh, stuff at the games? Uh, homeless people. Uh, there is a, uh, a local homeless ministry, uh, really it's one of the largest uh, homeless programs in the city of Tampa, that for years is one of its major fundraising mechanisms. It has sent its uh, homeless residents to work concessions at Bucks games and Tampa Bay Rays games and Tampa Bay Lightning games and concerts out here. Uh, and they basically they work unpaid. The concessions companies uh, make a donation to the ministry uh, and these, these guys are working these games are, are working for their uh, food and shelter. So they are, are living at these shelters and, and being fed there, but they are, they are making no actual money off of the, the work that they're performing. Uh, correct. Some of them occasionally get tips. Uh, however, uh, the contract with Airmark actually explicitly prohibits uh, them from getting tips. Uh, I talked to a guy this week who said that uh, he witnessed some of his homeless coworkers at... Uh, New York Yankees minor league game, selling hot dogs, they would um, throw away a couple of the hot dogs and then pocket the cash they got, uh, say that they'd actually sold, uh, uh, you know, 10 hot dogs and they actually thrown away three of them just to, to make some extra cash for, for spending money. Is this legal? Because it sounds like indentured servitude to me. Right, that is the parallel that some folks are making. Um, it, is, uh, it is legal to compensate somebody with, with room and board uh, but you need to document the, I mean, it's not rocket science is what labor lawyers have told us. You need to document the hours the guys are working for you and then document the value of the room and board you're providing just to show to the federal government, the Department of Labor, that uh, you're, you're giving these guys at least minimum wage for their hours. Uh, this, this ministry uh, openly acknowledges they don't keep track of hours. They say that would be too tedious. Uh, and they claim the guys uh, only work 10 to 15 hours a week for them. Uh, now we're working on another story that's going to run this weekend that will uh, quote a number of people who say that that's not accurate, that they worked 40 hours a week uh, doing other odd jobs around the property for, for years and never got paid. So uh, so the, the law says then you need to set a wage against the number of hours worked, but this, this charity, New Beginnings, has not documented anything. Correct. Correct. So uh, you, how did you find out about this story? 
we uh, worked on a series of stories about um, another homeless agency in Tampa last year that had some problems with the uh, quality of housing they were providing. And uh, as an after effect of that story, a few folks talked to us about this, this ministry, New Beginnings of Tampa, and said, you know, you should, you should take a close look at, at what they do. Uh, and there were a number of allegations involving misuse of food stamps and Social Security checks and what have you. Um, so we, we were poking into it for a while, and uh, the, while they, the folks in charge of the ministry dispute the allegations of, of misuse of, of food stamps and Social Security checks, they always openly acknowledge that they, they work these guys without pay uh, at local sporting events. Uh, and you know, we made a few calls to labor lawyers who said basically, you know, you really, if you're going to do that, you need to be pretty good about the, the paperwork you're keeping. Uh, and with them acknowledging they didn't do that, we knew we had at least a pretty sizable story on our hands. And for these guys to be living uh, in this facility and through this charity, they need to sign over their Social Security checks and their food stamps? Uh, that is correct. It's, uh, they're given a stack of paperwork on the way in where they agree that uh, all the mail uh, that they'll be getting will be going to the facility and will be opened by the, by the guy in charge, a guy named Pastor Tom Atchison, um, including food stamps and, and Social Security checks. Now, there are uh, there is legitimate uh, defense of, of a policy like that. There are uh, group homes for indigent people who do get group food stamp licenses, and New Beginnings is one of them, the, the premise being that if you're going to take in you know, 100 people on food stamps, you just get a group license and you buy all the food. Uh, and with substance abuse recovery centers, which New Beginnings is, uh, there are many that, that supervise their uh, residents' finances because uh, particularly in the first few months uh, after detox, uh, large sums of money can provide temptation for relapse for, for folks with addiction issues. Uh, however, there have been a number of allegations that, that it's not just supervising finances, it's controlling finances, and that, that when, these, when these guys graduate the program and are ready to leave and they ask for their money, there's nothing there. Hmm. Well, speaking of uh, potential for relapse, I would think serving beer at a football game would be a pretty tenuous situation. Yeah, that, that, and that the the quote from a social work expert said, uh, she said, I don't know if unconscionable is too strong a word to use for sending uh, recovering alcoholics in their first few months of recovery out to serve alcohol. Yeah. So this has been happening uh, at Tampa Bay Buccaneers games and uh, Tampa Bay Lightning games in the NHL and Rays games in baseball. Is is it still going on with all these teams? Uh, the Lightning dropped uh, New Beginnings, I believe, after the 2013 season. Uh, they said uh, for quote unquote reliability and consistency concerns. Uh-huh. Uh, the Rays and the concessions companies for the Rays and Bucks have uh, canceled their relationship with New Beginnings uh, in the aftermath of, of the first story we did. Okay. So uh, where does it go from here? What's, is, is the charity uh, saying anything about this? Are they defending themselves? Uh, yes, quite, uh, quite vociferously. Uh, they uh, very strongly claim that the, the work that these guys do is, is a vital component of their, their therapy. And it's a vital fundraiser for a program that provides shelter for, for guys for whom there are very little uh, options in terms of housing. But uh, the people providing therapy, I understand, are not actually licensed therapists. Correct. The, the quote-unquote counselors are all graduates of the program, none uh, clinically or formally educated. 
uh, in, uh, in social work or related field, all working for their shelter at the facility. Uh, and a social work expert I talked to about this said, you know, this is actually, uh, this is quite common. Uh, she called them kind of uh, rogue therapeutic communities where uh, recovering addicts kind of counsel each other. Uh, the, the main issue she had with it was the idea of, of sending these guys out to serve alcohol. Yeah. Do you know, have you uncovered if this is happening in other cities? Uh, I have not. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't really surprise me because what these concessions companies do, what Aramark and Centerplate do, is across the country they let nonprofits in the cities where they operate uh, send volunteers to work their concession stands, mm-hmm. and in exchange, they give donations to those those nonprofits. And you see it happen with like high school bands and right. uh, uh, travel hockey teams. Uh, and uh, so, it, it seems to me entirely possible that in another city, uh, a, a homeless ministry could be raising proceeds uh, the same way. Will Hobson of the Tampa Bay Times sounds like you got a lot to write about down there. It, it'll be a busy few weeks. All right, thanks, Will. Thanks, everyone. Lindsay Whalen is with us, five-time WNBA All-Star, two-time WNBA World Champion, and Minnesotan. Hello, Lindsay. How you doing? I'm well, thanks. So I was uh, I was going through European League basketball websites, as I like to do for some reason, and I saw this item that you had been signed by a team called Abdullah Gol University in Turkey. Yes, yes, it's in the city of Kayseri, so it's um, about... Um, oh, I'd say probably like an hour uh, flight away from Istanbul, so kind of right in the middle of the country. Uh, I'll be going there January 3rd. My first game will be January 7th, so um, yeah, I've got that going for four months after Christmas, and just kind of a, a deal that came up in the last week or so, and uh, I'm really excited about it. Got some really great teammates, um, so it should be pretty cool. Uh, new new adventure and a new New city to get to know. Yeah, I think this is something that a lot of people don't know about WNBA players because I think with a lot of athletes, we just think, oh, when the season's over, they, you know, go fishing or sleep in or whatever. You have played all over the world. You've played in Moscow. You've played in the Czech Republic. You just never stop. Yeah, I've been playing. Um, this will be 10 years overseas, so uh, off and on for nine years, um, you know, with seven of those years being pretty um, much the full years and um, so that's been really, really a lot of fun. So what teams are you now affiliated with? Because you're still with the Minnesota Lynx, and now you're with Abdullah Gul. Are you still with Dynamo Moscow as well? Yeah, last year was Dynamo, Dynamo Moscow. Dynamo. Um, I was in Ekaterinburg before then. Um, like you said, uh, Czech for five years. So it's been, it's been fun. Last year was really good. We won the, the FIBA Cup. Um, in Dinamo, and it ended up being a, a really fun season. Got to know a couple of great teammates, and Tina Charles and Christy Tolliver. Um, Tina plays for New York in the WNBA, and Christy plays for LA uh, in the WNBA. So, some people who you play against a lot during the during the summer, but then uh, you are teammates with a lot of them during the winter. So it's uh, it's been pretty cool. Do you play complete seasons in all these places? Uh, this year I won't. I'll do the half year. Um, Last year I did. I think I missed two or three games just because the WNBA went to, uh, um, you know, with us winning the championship, we went all the way to the end, and then I took three weeks off after that. So I missed a couple games, but 
Yeah, pretty much full season. Uh, not much of a break, but I, I decided to take these three months and rest between the WNBA season and the European season. Is that something that your body didn't need so much eight or ten years ago, but now you need now you need to take a little break? Yeah, I think it's smart. You know, I think it's something that you have to do as time goes on and as you're into the league more. Um, you know, I'm 32, so I, I feel like I have a lot of good years ahead of me, but I also am, you know, realistic. Um, yeah, I've just tried to, you know, kind of scale back this year, take the half year off, and then kind of take it year to year. Um, I'm signed two more years with the Lynx, so I'm very excited about that. And um, I'm in the Olymp- Olympics pool for the 2016 Games in uh, Brazil, so... Those are my my main next couple of years. Those are my main focus, and I'll just continue to do that and, and try to enjoy it. So what does your calendar then look like for 2015? So you go to Turkey starting in early January, and how long are you there? I'll be there till the end of April, so four, four months. And then off to the WNBA, back home to Minnesota. Yep, that starts May 17th is camp, so I'll have a couple of weeks probably after the season in Turkey before I have to be to camp. Then that will go till hopefully the end, hopefully middle of October, um, and then after that, I'll kind of decide what I want to do at that point. Again, whether if something really good comes up overseas, take that. If not, and it depends on how I'm feeling, if I'm healthy. Um, if not, take a break again and just go from there. How many? How what percentage would you say of WNBA players play overseas when the WNBA season isn't going on? Um, I'd probably say seventy to eighty percent. I, I feel like there's some that stay back and do work. Um, you know, work out do promotional stuff, do they have endorsements, um, some health-wise, just um, the year-round thing isn't, you know, doesn't work for them. Um, but I say 70 to 80%. Um, you know, some teams have a lot. Most Some teams have like eight or nine of their players going over. Some teams have five. So it just kind of depends. But I would say the majority of players go and play. It's a, it's a really long off-season if you take eight months off. I mean, yeah. I feel like three or four months is probably a good offseason, but eight is a little too long. Got to stay busy. So you're you're a Minnesotan, and I, I know a lot of people, I, I'm in Minnesota too, and a lot of people around here recognize you. They love you. They love you from the, the links and from the University of Minnesota, even from high school. What is your public profile when you go to somewhere like Moscow? Like what what is the celebrity status of a women's basketball player there? Uh, in Moscow? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, pretty much non-existent as far as people recognizing you. Um, you just kind of blend in, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously a little more recognizable in Minnesota or you know, different WNBA cities. But um, when I go overseas, it's it's nothing. So it's just uh, me and my husband, and we're just keeping busy. Um, that's what we do. Well, I was going to ask you about that. So your husband travels with you to all these uh, all these cities you go to? Yeah, for the most part. You know, he he usually comes to a good majority of the season, and. Um, he's able to still work here and come over, so that works out really well, and it just makes for uh, you know a really good situation. Um, then, have you played in Turkey before? Have you been on a Turkish team before? Uh, yeah, once one other time I, I was. And what's that like? I mean, what what's it like living in in Turkey and playing basketball as opposed to uh, being in the states? You know, it's a little different. Just uh, you know, it's a great league. It's a really great women's basketball league. Um, a lot of great players. A lot of great teams. Um, but it's different. I mean, it's like every overseas team. It's a little, it's different than here, and just has its different, you know, I guess ups and downs and everything. So, um, is the game different? Like once you get on the court, is it is it a different style? Uh, a little, yeah. Some of the rules are different. Style is just a little different than than the WNBA. So there's always a little adjustment period, but 
overall and having fun over there is always uh, always a good thing. Do you think this is going to be kind of the model for a while with uh with the WNBA, do you think this is just going to be the way it is for most of the players where they, they just spend their whole year traveling around the world playing on different teams? Oh, it's kind of been that way lately, yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, there's leagues, there's the European season over there that everybody goes and plays in, and then everybody comes home in the WNBA. So um, I think it'll probably continue for a while. I think that a lot of players you know, especially younger players, if they want to continue to get better and continue to improve in the WNBA, they have to go overseas and keep getting better and, and keep working at their game. Um, do you get to keep the uniforms when you're done? Do you do you have a whole room full of all these crazy uniforms? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, well, sometimes I'll give them away to fans that are at that come to all the games and stuff. But I'll keep the shorts for sure and some of the jerseys. Yeah, I've got a couple just kind of like all over scattered throughout my house. Now, I, I don't know much about uh, about the pay scale in the WNBA, but I, I get the sense that uh, WNBA players are paid less than NBA players. I, I've, I've gathered that much. Uh, if, it, mm-hmm. if it didn't make yep. so much financial sense to go overseas, if it made more financial sense to just stay home, work out, get ready for the next season, would you do that? Or is there something about going overseas that you would just love to do no matter what? Uh, I mean... If there was something else I could do financially, if it made sense to stay here, I would. I mean, it's just it's home, and you want to, you know, be around your family and stuff. But, I mean, there's definitely other good parts about being overseas than, you know, just, you know, financially and, the, and money. I mean, it's, you know, you're getting experience a whole different part of the world, new teammates, you know, competition. You get to play at, you know, a very high level, and um, there's just a lot of perks to it. And, uh, I don't know, you just kind of get used to the – the lifestyle, just playing and um, traveling around. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say though. It's um, it's always nice to be home. Is language ever an issue? Like if you're somewhere like Turkey, I mean, I can't imagine you speak the the local language there. Uh, no, I mean the coaches usually coach in English, so that's kind of been the way it's gone the last couple of years for me. So. Either that, or we'll have a translator. Well, it's an interesting life that you lead, and uh, and it's been it's been fun to watch you. And I'm glad that uh, I don't often have to pronounce the names of all the teams that you've played for. Uh, Lindsey Whalen of the Minnesota yes. Lynx and various other clubs. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Turning to PBA rankings, it looks like number one is Jason Belmonte with 118,259 points, trailing far behind EJ Tackett, Bill O'Neill, Dom Barrett, Wes Mallett, Tommy Jones, Chris Barnes, Sean Rash, Chris Lockstetter, and Pete Weber. But no one even has half of the points that Jason Belmonte has. He's also number one in earnings on the PBA Tour Professional Bowling Association with $145,653. Jason Belmonte is doing well bowling. Who's last ranked among money earners? Well, in 153rd place, Mason Brantley. He has earned $100. It's easy to scoff at Mason Brantley and his $100, but it's $100 more than you ever made bowling. The producer of Home Dunk is Nina Patak. We are part of the Infinite Guest Network at infiniteguest.org. The last episode of 2014 is going to be part of the Infinite Guest Year-End Extravaganza. All of our shows on Infinite Guest will share some material, look back at 2014, and over here on Home Dunk, it will be time for the Dunkies. We're going to find some highlights of the year, 
find some of our most significant athletes, most significant moments, moments that made you uh, less happy to be part of the human race, and maybe one or two that made you more happy to be part of the human race. The year in sports, the Dunkies, that's coming up for our last episode of 2014. That's coming up in a few weeks on Home Dunk. I'm John Moe. Bye now.